Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, where we bring together prospect editors and experts pushing the question, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospects, and this week Jay Elwes has been speaking to security and intelligent experts on the attempted assassination in Salisbury of Sergei Skripal, the former Russian double agent. Many questions and uncertainties remain about what happened and why. And of course, looking over all of this is the figure of Vladimir Putin. Just what is the newly re-elected Putin's game? Traitors to Russia, as Mr. Putin has a number of times said in the past, will get their just reward, even if it takes decades. Jay began by speaking to one of Britain's most experienced Russia watchers. I'm here with Jonathan Isle of RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Jonathan, there are still people who have doubts over whether there was in fact Russian involvement in the attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal. What do you say to those people? Well, I would say that it's clearly the case that Skripal was not your ideal target. Uh, He was retired. He would sort of walk around with his tracksuits as people who have nothing much to do and no one in particular to see uh, would do. He was very much yesterday's story. He was also not a very important guy in the last two decades. And it seems all very odd that someone, first of all, will try to kill him and secondly will try to do it in such a baroque way. There are, after all, easier ways of dispatching someone if that is your intention. So I can understand people who find it all very odd. The timing is odd, the target is odd, the method is odd. However, one needs to remember that countries don't always work by the same linear logic. And we have plenty of examples with Russia. Uh, I would say the following, that in most criminal investigation cases, the public at large doesn't see the evidence. The evidence is on probability, and the evidence is being conveyed by proper authorities. So there's no question that Britain still has a fight in making this charge stick. There is no question that there will be a need to provide more information. But it doesn't need to be provided to the public. And I think one of the biggest battles facing us 
would be the battles of the conspiracy theories, one of the traditional Russian methods of dealing with such matters uh, whenever Russia is in a sticky corner, is to start providing uh, a lot of competing uh, conspiracy theories in order to obfuscate everything. So, like in the MH17, the destruction of the Malaysian airliner over Ukraine in 2014, uh, they produced a myriad of conspiracy theory, one more ludicrous than the other, with the intention of creating a situation whereby the end nobody quite cares or knows what to do. We're facing something similar. So I would say all the logic points to Russian involvement in an assassination of an agent which for a variety of reasons they wanted dispatched. It is not a logical story, but it is not our logic. Jeremy Corbyn has stopped short so far of saying explicitly that he thinks this was Russia. Is he right to be doubtful? I think it is right for the opposition to query the sort of immediate uh, instinctive uh, pressure for support for the government. In that respect, the opposition is doing nothing more than what it needs to do. I think it is odd that the party leader seems to be at a different position for most of his front bench, not to speak of the back benches. I think it is also uh, odd since other intelligence agencies and other governments seem to have accepted the British um, explanation. Um, So in that respect, I think it is odd. It also is not comparable to previous cases. It is suggested, for instance, people like Seamus Milne have suggested that we have uh, a bad record of identifying culprits by pointing out to the uh, story of the alleged uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in 2003. It's not at all like that for two reasons. First, nobody doubted in 2003 that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Even the Germans and the French admitted it. They just queried the need for a war, which is a completely different thing. So it wasn't that people obfuscated. And secondly, nobody doubts that a chemical nerve agent was used on the streets of Salisbury two weeks ago. So um, the point is not whether the event took place. It is not an, an invented event. Even the Russians admit that a chemical agent was used on the streets of a British city. So the question is the culprit. And I think that perhaps the leader of the opposition should have given the government slightly more credit on identifying the culprit. You mentioned earlier that Russia um, has a logic in the way that it acts, even though it's not necessarily our logic. That's a very interesting comment. Could you try and unpick that a bit and maybe explain some of the logic behind why uh, the Kremlin would cause an event like this to happen? By all means. First, it's worth remembering that the Russian state has explicitly changed 10 years ago its legislation in order to authorize uh, assassinations. Uh, The legislation in itself says that in extreme circumstances, assassinations can be authorized, and Mr. Putin, President Putin, has defended that position on a number of times. Secondly, this is a country that has a history of targeted assassinations. Russian diplomats were convicted of assassinating uh, an opponent in uh, in Qatar, uh, in the Gulf, and there are subsequent examples in other Gulf states as well as European countries. So the record is there and it is undeniable. 
As to the uh, calculations uh, as far as Mr. Skripal and his daughter are concerned, there may be a number. The first one is the traditional one that uh, uh, traitors to Russia, as Mr. Putin has a number of times said in the past, will get their just reward even if it takes decades. So there is an element there of the long arm of the Russian state. Secondly, there is a Russian determination to blow up the rule books on almost everything. Uh, there was a gentleman's agreement between intelligence services that spies who were swapped are beyond touch. There's also an agreement between intelligence services that families of spies are beyond touch. Mr. Putin seems to have set aside rules that even the KGB in the darkest days of the Cold War used to respect. Now, there may be a very good reason for that from uh, Mr. Putin's perspective. He's engaged in a hybrid war with us. He's, he needs to keep us on our toes by making himself as unpredictable as possible, as unrule-bound as possible. He succeeds in that objective. And then there may be a few ancillary objectives, like the fact that uh, uh, Britain has led the anti-Russian campaign, as Moscow sees it over the last few months, by identifying the the Russians as a potential threat, so it may suit uh, Mr. Putin uh, to appear to be humiliating Britain. And a more personal effect. Uh, Mr. Putin very often dismisses Britain as yesterday's story. I don't think he takes us very seriously. But he does take our intelligence services very seriously. He knows that they are among the best in the world. And he also knows that they are among those who have inflicted most damage on Russia, including the extraordinary thing of the chief Russian intelligence officer in London being for over a decade a double agent uh, of the British. These are the kind of... Uh, stories that then go into the folklore of intelligence services. So humiliating the British intelligence services by showing that he could do things on our doorstep is the key. What can Britain do by way of uh, retaliation? Uh, retaliation, first of all, in a way that is demonstrative to show that Britain will not stand for this sort of activity. But secondly... Uh, to uh, in, inflict political injury on Mr. Putin. Is there anything that we could do? And would it be in our interests to attempt to do that even? This is a wise question because the real problem that we have is what strategists would call escalation dominance. Namely, we are not in a position to escalate it to a level where it becomes clear to Mr. Putin that if he were to try something similar in the future, the costs will be higher than the potential benefits. We are still in a reactive mode, and much of what we do is actually intended to simply act as a tit-for-tat rather than to change the narrative, as it were. So the way the government is framed at the moment, the, the prime minister has shied away from expelling the Russian ambassador, probably correctly at this stage. Um, there is also an attempt to suggest that... Um, oh, that we would continue to have some kind of a relationship with Russia. 
and all British officials continue to repeat the mantra that we have nothing against the people of Russia, but only against an individual leader of that country, which of course is correct, but it is designed as code words for suggesting that we would want to continue some kind of a dialogue with Moscow. I think the problem we have is that we can't retaliate, retaliate in kind. Uh, nobody is going to suggest that we gas uh, uh, Miss Anna Chapman, for instance, the Russian spy who was exchanged uh, for, among others, uh, the people now in the UK. Uh, so we're not going to be able to do a tit for tat, nor should we consider doing that. The biggest problem for the British is that the only way this confrontation would work for us is if we retain the support of our closest allies. The real powerful message would be if we retain the support of the French, of the Germans, and of the Americans, among others. And that means that we can't afford to be too strident and too far ahead of them if we want to keep pace with them. Do you think at the moment we are retaining th their support? I remember uh, after the, the Litvinenko assassination, uh, there was a lot of uh, very hot rhetoric uh, and then very little else from Britain's allies. How, how do you read it now? I think it's different this time for a variety of reasons. First, because the Russians have um, exerted exactly the same kind of influence and baleful activities on many other countries in Europe. So almost every country in Europe has its own tale with the Russians in one shape or another. Indeed, the untold story of the last few weeks has been how intelligence services from around Europe have been sending uh, uh, liaison officers to London to talk about this event, mainly because they're trying to recreate perhaps similarly suspicious events in a variety of other European countries where people suddenly died in unexplained circumstances. So in that respect, um, uh, there is now a very different mood than what it was uh, a decade ago. I think the the second reason is that, of course, the confrontation between the West and Russia is now at a different uh, level. Uh, and, of course, that the British government has responded differently. Let's not forget, last time with Litvinenko, we were all a bit confused for days as to what actually happened. The British response was lame and very quickly uh, was sort of swept under the carpet. In fact, the biggest problem for the British government was how to avoid an inquest uh, into the death of Litvinenko so it, that it would not be forced uh, to reveal its intelligence sources. Well, there's been no reluctance of this kind now. Uh, however, the question is how long we're going to sustain it. I mean, it was pretty obvious, for instance, that the latest uh, meetings of the Foreign Affairs Council of the European Union on, on Monday uh, was um, basically tried to avoid pinning too much blame on Russia and still assume that it would be up to the Brits uh, to provide subsequent information, uh, subsequent forensic information as to what happened in Salisbury. So it's a very delicate act. I think for the moment we're succeeding probably better than the Russians expected, but I think the tendency would be for this kind of a, a unity to fray very quickly. We're talking uh, today, uh, the day after uh, Russia went to the polls. Um, I think everybody knew that the result was not really in question. Putin is domestically, it seems to me at least, uh, in a very 
powerful position. The economy is kind of doing all right despite the sanctions and the low oil price, and he has entirely conventional uh, economic policies at home at least. But he seems to uh, have, over recent years, engineered uh, a very uh, uh, unusual foreign policy that has included attempted assassinations like the one in Salisbury, perhaps interference in the elections of other Western countries, specifically the United States, um, though there are a huge number of questions that remain in that direction. Um, there is the suggestion that he has been in some way associated with the Front National in France, with funding other parties that have anti-EU uh, uh, agendas and so on. What, first of all, what, what do you think his aim is? And secondly, do you think he's winning? Again, his logic is not our logic. So very often it is very difficult to build, uh, to construct uh, a logical argument as to why the Russian president is adopting the policies that he is. But I think one can be uh, presented. Uh, first, as far as Putin is concerned, he sees his intervention in other countries' internal electoral processes as being just part of the course. Uh, namely, just the response to what he believes the West did to Russia over decades. He views the democracy promotion and any demonstrations, any dissent inside Russia as foreign engineered. The whole new legislation about foreign agents in Russia classifies as foreign agent basically anyone, almost by definition, who happens to be against the regime. So the two are equated. So as far as he sees it, the West is simply getting his just reward. It may therefore be that Putin would be very happy to get a sort of non-aggression pact with Western countries, whereby we drop any democracy promotion in Russia, and he in turn drops any meddling. But there is something more fundamental. It's a very eclectic group of people that Mr. Putin is supporting. He's supporting left-wingers uh, like those in Venezuela. He's supporting extreme right-wingers in many European countries. In fact, he's happy to support anyone who's prepared to crack the present status quo. As Putin sees it, the real objective of Russia is to crack the system, the status quo, the security arrangements that were put in place in the world at the end of the Soviet Union, an event which he openly considers one of the most tragic events of the 20th century. So what to us looks as the normal state of affairs, as the day-to-day -day activity of a peaceful Europe, looks to Mr. Putin as completely unacceptable. Now, he knows he can't confront us openly. He knows that his economy will not be able to stand us. He does not want to repeat the mistakes of the Soviet Union, which ended up in rubble because it tried to suggest an alternative universe only to fall flat on its face. So he's doing something else. He's trying to use every instrument at his disposal to crack our system open. Does he believe that he's winning? Yes, I think he does. I think he believes that this is a price worth paying. If one looks carefully between the lines of his speeches, many of which repeat the same old cliches uh, for the last few years, I think he still sees Russia as an alternative Rome, as an alternative center of a new uh, ideology, one that is not communist, but certainly an alternative to our model. I think he sees us as limp-wristed, 
corrupt, duplicitous, doing, suggesting that the Russians should do things we wouldn't impose on ourselves, as well as morally and sexually corrupt, uh, all the kind of things that we have seen over the last few years. I think he definitely sees us as a society doomed to fail, and therefore as his role being that of the man poised to bring Russia back uh, to its greatness. And I think he's also got a historic perspective, which again is not ours, one in which Russia is frequently defeated historically, but always somehow manages to bounce back when it has a powerful leader, which incidentally always means an authoritarian leader. And he's just won himself another six years uh, in the Kremlin. We were having conversations in the office before the election about the possibility maybe of turning our attention to uh, Russia after Putin. You know, what what might that look like and whether there were any individuals waiting in the wings who were maybe being groomed as successors and so on. Um, I don't think we're thinking in that in those terms anymore. I mean, we're, we're, Vladimir Putin is, is not going away. Um, how, how long do you think he can go on for and does he have uh, a, a domestically at least very secure support of people immediately around him? I think he has managed to recreate an authoritarian state which is a sort of a cross between the Soviet Union and Tsarist Russia. If you substitute the oligarchs for the dukes and the counts of the past, you are in a sort of similar situation. A few dukes, a few counts, and a lot of serfdom peasantry. Um, in that respect, the model is the same. And you can stay in the apex of this model for quite some time. The sort of curious fusion of the intelligence services, the oligarchs, the oil and gas industry, all with Putin as the umpire between them is a model they can continue. There is two problems that always apply to Russia. The first one is that this pyramid of power is constructed uh, with the pretense of running a first world economy, a first world country perched on top of a third world economy. And if you look historically over 250 years, all Russian leaders, be they czars or commissars, fell flat at the end because the contradiction between the two was simply too great. And I doubt that Mr. Putin will manage to defy the forces of gravity. And then the second problem is comrade biology. Uh, Mr. Putin will be in his mid-70s by the time he finishes his next term. He may be tempted to change the constitution and go for a third consecutive term, but my personal feeling is that probably he will try to groom a successor. And this is when systems like that become very brittle. Any successor would have to very swiftly get to the top of the same pyramid that was put by Putin, but a pyramid that is very personal to Putin and may not survive him. Is there any indication at all of who that successor might be or where they might come from? Maybe is Mr. Medvedev likely to return? No. No, No, I think Mr. Medvedev is very much a man of the hour. Namely, he was the cute, presentable chap who could keep the seat warm for Mr. Putin. And as we now see, um, Putin resents the period when Medvedev was president. No, I think a successor to Putin will have to be someone who will achieve two things. First, keep the pyramid of power in place 
this, the power vertical, as the Russians like to call it. Uh, and secondly, ensure the survival of those who are retiring together with Mr. Putin. And that is something that requires careful choice because one's personal life it depends on it. Uh, Russian leaders don't have a habit of retiring to look after their rose gardens uh, when leaving power. So if one wants to have a rose garden and enjoy it after leaving power, one would have to make very sure that the guy at the top is the right one. I think two things are happening. First, there's a search among the oligarchs, especially the younger oligarchs, as to what will be the proper candidate or the consensus candidate. Secondly, there is a grooming of a new generation of people around the presidency. If one looks at the latest appointments that Putin has made, these are sort of aristocracy by Russian standards, namely they're the next generation, sons and daughters of the oligarchs, trusted people's uh, uh, children who are now being pro promoted to positions of power as the next generation. But I'm not sure that there is uh, any sort of uh, immediate candidate to mind. I've always had a small bet on Igor Sechin. Um, probably the darkest of all the dark princes behind the throne. Who is he? Well, a man who runs effectively Russia's oil industry, a man who actually was more senior than Mr. Putin in the intelligence services, but has served him ever since. A man constantly dismissed as being all about the power structures, but not about the politics. But I have watched him for years trying to polish his credentials, including uh, visits to the United States, including the hiring of Western uh, PR companies to burnish his image. It may be that it's a very long shot, uh, but I think it would have to be a serious candidate. The days when Mr. Putin's chair could be kept warm by a filler like Medvedev are over. The description that you give is of is of quite a uh, a set, uh, quite a rigid uh, structure of of FSB and oligarchs and 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 politics and so on business. Um, I don't know if you saw the interview on the BBC with Khodorkovsky the other night, in which he said he painted a very different picture, and he seemed to be suggesting that Putin was in a, a, a period of, of weakness, that the structures around him were not so solid, and that the attack on Skripal was uh, a result of this instability. What, what do you think of that? We're all dealing with probabilities. It, clearly, there is something about people who live outside Russia. They tend to see the system as more monolithic than it is. We know from the Soviet Union, for instance, uh, that they're from the archives of the Soviet Union which were briefly open for us to look at, um, that there was a lot of discussion in a system that to us from outside look as monolithic then as well. So I wouldn't exclude the possibility that there are serious discussions. As I've said, uh, Putin is an umpire. He has to balance off various interests. And there's no question that his interests are fighting. For instance, there's no question, for instance, the gas sector is fighting against the all-important oil sector for resources, for public attention, for influence. There's no question that some oligarchs periodically scupper the finance ministries, the Russian finance ministries' plan for tax collection, for instance, or for tax regimes. 
There is no question that, for instance, the National Bank of Russia has been much better at managing the currency than people would have expected and that the oligarchs wanted. So clearly this is not a monolithic system in a, in a particular way. However, I'll be a bit more cautious when it comes to the question of whether Skripal was assassinated by people, or the attempted assassination of Skripal was as a result of some people, um, sort of dissident elements or elements that have a different view from uh, Putin. Mainly because uh, the assassination itself would have brought less benefits than the potential disadvantages. Namely, if someone did this operation as a rogue operation without Putin's direct authorization, he would have risked the wrath of the president if Russia was embroiled in a conflict with Britain which it didn't want. And therefore, the potential disadvantages of doing a rogue operation without approval are much higher than the potential advantages. Let's, let us recall, Mr. Skripal was not the most important intelligence agent to be snuffed out. So in that respect, I don't buy the argument. It's very possible that Mr. Putin did not explicitly authorize the assassination. But it is a system in which the security services have a large leeway of action, provided they keep within the certain broad guidelines which uncontrovertibly are decided by Mr. Putin. Jonathan Isle there of RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Next I spoke to Anatole Levin of Georgetown University. He spoke to me down the line from Qatar, and I began by asking what more Britain could do in response to the attack in Salisbury, and whether Britain could target sanctions directly at Vladimir Putin. Well, but we've done that to a considerable extent. And, I mean, Putin doesn't care. He, you know, de- they've, all, they've demonstrated that amply since, you know, the Ukrainian uh, crisis began. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, there have been, it appears, two murders so far, right? I mean, assuming, which I think is, is quite right, that you can include Glukov in this. Um, one of them, uh, now, I mean, it, it is quite important, of course, to remember what these are about. Um, Both of them were, of course, offensive, deeply offensive to Britain. And one of them uh, was also dangerous to British citizens. You know, you, 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 and quite apart from being by now completely illegal under international law, the use of, you know, nerve agents. Um, But, I mean, it's worth, it is worth pointing out that neither of these actions were directed against Britain. They were directed against people who the Putin administration and a great many ordinary Russians regard as Russian traitors in Britain. And this was not an assault on Britain. It's, you know, it's been portrayed as a sort of attack on on Britain. It wasn't. Now, that doesn't mean that Britain has to accept it without, you know, retaliation. Um, but, I mean, it's not, you know, as if... <laughs> The, the Russian government was, you know, backing a terrorist attack on the British public, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or an assassination attempt on a British minister or politician or something. And, um, you know, our, our own secret services, uh, I mean, the British to a more limited extent, but certainly the French to a col- colossal extent in the past, had engaged in this kind of thing on foreign soil, remember. You know, it wasn't generally regarded as an attack on Italy when the the, um, you know, the French Secret Service picked off, um, you know, during the Algerian War. 
um, French, you know, enemies of the French state in Italy. Uh, so if we say that, uh, that the, 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 the Russians, um, they did these two acts, this was not an attack directed against Britain, they have been, uh, the Kremlin has been ordering uh, the, uh, the, the, the assassination of, of, its, uh, of its enemies as it sees it overseas since, uh, since going back to Trotsky, that this is something that we simply have to accept Russia does and that actually there's nothing we can do about it. Is that our no, only I I position? Yes. Uh, no, I, mean, I, I certainly didn't say that we simply have to accept what Russia does in this regard. Uh, it's a question of the... Ex uh, we, we have to retaliate. And as, as I said, it was entirely correct to expel Russian diplomats. It was entirely correct, um, you know, to, to try to undermine the prestige of the, of the World Cup in Moscow. Um, but, I mean, there are, there are two things to, to, to keep in mind. You know, one, there is a, uh, you know, an international playbook for this. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we should stick to that in terms of the, 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 the terms of our retaliation, given that, it, as I say, it wasn't actually, you know, it wasn't a direct attack on us as such. The second thing, of course, is that, um, you know, this has been raised in other contexts. Uh, I mean, for example, economic retaliation against Russia. Um, we have to think very carefully about what forms of this will actually hurt rather than helping the Russian administration. Because, after all, um, you know, this is where the motivations for, for, for killing... Um, you know the KGB defector and uh, or, or um, British spy and and um, uh, the Aeroflot executive were somewhat different. I mean, the killing of the Aeroflot executive was meant to say, you know, don't steal Russian state money and then move to to, to Britain with it and help. You know the. Um, forces opposed to Putin. Of course, you can steal. That's not a problem. But you have to keep it in Russia and you have to support the. Um, you know, the Putin administration. Now, you see, from this point of view, of course, something that in principle Russia, Britain should have done long ago, uh, not against Russia specifically, but against corruption across the world in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in, you know, God knows how many countries, is cracked down much harder um, on people laundering stolen money through London. Uh, but there are two problems here. One is that the city has always been, of course, adamantly opposed to that uh, for very obvious reasons, given that they make such huge profits off, off this. Uh, but the second thing is that, of course, if, um, if we impose you know, a kind of blanket ban, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm, I think we probably should. But it isn't going to hurt Putin in, in any way. On the contrary. You know, this this helps him keep the money in Russia and control it in Russia. And, you know, people who keep their money in Russia are more likely to be forced to support Putin. So you see what I mean? Um, there's, a, you know, there are responses which look appropriate, um, but which may actually help Putin. Anatole Levin there. Next, I spoke to Pauline Neville-Jones, the former chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee. That's the body in Parliament that oversees all the activities of Britain's intelligence services. 
was the ability of, should we say, Russian operatives to bring uh, a weapon of that sort into Britain and use it a a major intelligence failure on our part? Well, I think you know we shall learn more. Um, it, uh, you know, we have pretty for all that there are security checks, you know, uh, in international travel. Um, unless we are actually going to take everybody's luggage apart, you know, on all occasions, uh, some things are going to get through. Um, uh, diplomats, obviously, you know, benefit from the Vienna Convention, and I wouldn't want to see you know, British diplomats in any uh, doubtful and difficult parts of the world deprived of the, of the protection of the Vienna Convention. But, of course, the Vienna Convention allows li- diplomatic bags through. Now, I'm not suggesting that... Uh, that uh, we know, or indeed, you know, that it is anything more than a possibility. But it is a possibility that it came that way. Uh, it is also a possibility that it came, it came in somebody's luggage. Then, of course, one of the interesting questions is, um, is how did it come in? Um, because these nerve agents um, are stable in their binary form, you know, before they're put together. They're not so stable, I think, once they've been put together. So um, I think there are questions there that one can speculate on, but I I don't think one can come to any kind of definitive conclusion. And I certainly wouldn't at the moment uh, jump jump to the conclusion that there'd been an intelligence failure. Mm. But as a a former chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, you would want to ask that question, Oh, I think the government will certainly be asking that question. Absolutely. And what kind of procedure will follow the asking (coughs) of a question like that? How would it work? Well, um, it will not, in, in many respects now, you know, this will be in the hands of the, of the scientists in Portland Down, uh, the police following uh, the traces of the, of the agent. Um, and we can see, you know, that one of the things they're obviously doing is tracking down the movements. And uh, um, they've, um, you know, they looked at the house, they've looked at the car, they're now looking apparently at the car uh, which collected uh, Yulia from the airport. And so on. So I think it's it's become it's become a a, a, you know, a criminal investigation. Um, but they will also, of course, be interested in um, the nature of the of the uh, uh, the nerve agent. I mean, clearly they've they've come to the conclusion that this is something that was uh, sourced in Russia, manufactured in Russia. Um, and you're right to say, you know, one of the crucial questions is how did it come in and in what form. When you look at Putin and when you look at the uh, the, the the Chinese uh, president who has just effectively made himself leader in, in perpetuity, and then if you just also begin to add to that mix President Trump and also the slightly more authoritarian slant of, of politics that you see in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe now, do you see a, a, a broad change that you think is worrying or are we just going through a moment that will pass? No, I think we have a challenge. Uh, and it's not a moment that's going to pass without effort. Um, no, I do think, I do think that, and this is why it's important to, to respond to this kind of behavior, is that actually we do have values that we do need to, we, we espouse and which we need to defend. Um, in some respects, the challenge that China puts in front of us is, is rather greater than and probably of, of longer duration um, this is a rising power, and sadly, I mean, Russia, I think, is a declining power, particularly given the way her politics interacts with, with in effect, the, 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 at the price of her economics. Um, uh, but uh, taken together, they do represent an autocratic challenge to the values and, above all, to the, 
the, the legal and political system which the Western powers have put in place and on the basis of which they've run the world you know, since 1945. And so there's a very big prize here, uh, which is who's, who rules and whose rules do we obey? Uh, and who is, you know, who is the powerful operator of those rules? Uh, so I, I'm, I, I agree with those who, who, who say that, that we can't, that's why we can't afford to go on you know, not responding and not defending uh, the values that we actually do stand for. Pauline Neville-Jones, thank you very much indeed. So that's it for this time's podcast. Thank you for listening. And to our guests here, Jonathan Ayle, Anatole Levin and Pauline Neville-Jones. I'm Tom Clark, the producer, as well as the presenter for much of the show was Jay Elwes. You can read more on intelligence and security, including an exclusive interview with David Petraeus on our website, www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And you might note while you're there that our subscription rates are very reasonable. Please be sure to tune in again soon to another episode of the Prospect Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.